Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. I'd like to talk a little bit about my family history before we jumped in today. In part, my brother and I and our two sisters share really interesting history together, and it relates very much to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I would like to talk about uh, my mom. My mom is, was a delightful person. Uh, she passed away in 2012, and she had an amazing journey. Uh, her story really begins way back, but one of the normal places to p- begin is with her grandfather. Her grandfather was named H.O. Wooten. And he was a West Texas businessman, owned a wholesale grocery similar to Cisco, and uh, serviced a huge portion of the West uh, and really built this huge empire. He built railroads and those kind of things. Uh, And what happened, if you look at the next picture, he became wildly rich. Here he is at the Federal Reserve ground-baking ceremony, my great-grandfather, and this is in 1931. He had just opened a hotel and a theater. It was profitable all during the Great Depression. The guy just kept making money, even though when people were losing it. And uh, here he is uh, pictured with the New York mayor and Hearst, the publisher on the upper right. And uh, our great-grandfather uh, cast a big shadow. And more than that, he left a lot of money. He uh, died in 1948, and his son, my grandfather, Sterling, and my grandmother, uh, Wooten, the next slide, uh, here they are pictured with my aunt in the light-colored peacoat, and my mom, who's got the snowball, which was rare in West Texas, uh, and on their front porch. You could tell there's really not that much snow. She had to really work hard to make that snowball. Uh, but, but there they were, and they had this idyllic childhood. It was a beautiful childhood, and they just, I mean, they were loaded financially. And um, it, they had a really sweet family. Uh, there's some really neat stories uh, of my mom um, growing up. And when her grandfather, my great-grandfather, H.O., died in 1948, just a year later, a tragedy stuck, struck with Sterling. Um, He uh, and my grandmother died in a plane crash over Houston in 1949. In short, he had been in Galveston on vacation. He was hit by a car on Seawall Boulevard, if you've ever been down there before. And, uh, And after a month in the hospital, he begged my grandmother to fly back on their private plane back to where they were because the drive had been so long, and he was in such bad shape. And she never wanted to, uh, to fly with him. And so, but they got their pilot, they took off, and they, uh, over Houston, the bystanders on the ground uh, watched as a big storm was blowing through. Nobody could tell if it was lightning or wind shear or whatever, but what the bystanders on the ground in Humble, Texas saw was this plane with one wing coming down and crashing and exploding. And so immediately my mom at age 14 was an orphan and wildly rich. The hardest part of this was at their funeral, she hid in a closet with my aunt and listened to all the 
extended family that were not prepared to take in two girls. Finally, two of her aunts that lived together said we could, they could, and they raised them and did a really good job with it. But my mom uh, loved her money, not because she was materialistic, but because it was connected to the parents that she lost. It was connected to a history and a childhood that seemed lost. And there were deeper reasons behind this inheritance for her. Well, it's interesting today, we're watching, we're going to watch a gentleman in the passage here, Acts 19, that loses his income. And when you lose your income, uh, you get anxious, you get angry, um, chaos often results in the people you're around, and that's what happens in Acts chapter 19. I'll tell you a little bit more about my family story in a minute, but if you have your Bible, Open up to Acts chapter 19. We're going to cover verses 23 through 41. Acts 19, 23 through 24. Let me give you a little context of the book of Acts. So far, we've been studying the book of Acts. And at the beginning of Acts, Jesus commands the disciples to be his witnesses all the way to the ends of their earth. And now we are on Paul's second missionary journey, his second traveling. And now he uh, lands in Ephesus, which is in western Turkey, right on the... Um, on the sea there, and Ephesus was this enormous, thriving metropolis, and it's actually having some financial decline. Uh, and uh, we find this gentleman who is losing his money, not just because of the financial decline, but because of the success of Christianity, that all kinds of people are turning from the Roman uh, pantheon, the... the uh, and the mythology that goes with it to becoming Christians, and as a result, they quit buying some of the trinkets that go along uh, with the Greek um, goddess Artemis. So let's read a little bit of that. In honor of God and His Word, would you please stand? I'm going to read the Scripture. At the end of this, uh, I want you, I'm going to say this is the Word of the Lord, and if you would please reply, thanks be to God. Acts 19, verses 23 through 41. Now, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And she may even be deposed from all of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, I don't know how you say that, Aristarchus, 
hard name, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and when urging him not to venture into the theater, back out of the theater in the crowd we read in verse 32, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of all them didn't even know why they had come together. Sounds like one of our riots, right? Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jew had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But they recognized him as he was a Jew. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? I love, I love that question because we're, we don't know who that. <laughs> we don't know that. 2,000 years later, we don't. But at the time, everybody knew that. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be set in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can get to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Today I'm going to ask you two questions. Two questions, all right? And I'm going to have you at the end of my message pick which question is most relevant to you today. One, what thing is too precious to you? That's the first question I'm going to ask you right now in your life. What thing is too precious to you? Now take note, if you already have an answer, write that quick on the spot. Your sermon is over. You know exactly what needs to happen. Because some of us know exactly what's going on with that question. Second question, how do you respond when others lose their precious things? And these are the two different things that we see of the two major groups here in the passage. With all the people of Ephesus that are losing their income, that are participating in the riot, there are things that are too precious to them to let go of, and that's their issue. And for the disciples and for Paul, who have to decide how do they handle this situation, they've got to look at their response. Is it a reaction, a negative reaction, or is it a positive response? And so the disciples' story in this story really leads us to that second question. How do you respond when others lose their precious things? Okay. Now let's do the first question. Uh, what thing is too precious for you? As I mentioned, there is no small disturbance about the way, which is Christianity. There's, it's causing a big problem. This city that's already in financial recession, now in a certain industry, anything associated with the Temple of Artemis uh, is now falling apart. Uh, more people are becoming Christians, and more people are not buying 
these small silver statues of Artemis. Now, Artemis was a big deal. And uh, among many things, she was the goddess of fertility. So if you really wanted to have babies but you couldn't, you went to Artemis. If you really wanted to have a litter of puppies, <laughs> this is more of a contemporary illustration, and, and that's what you wanted was puppies more than anything in the world, you would go back then to Artemis, the goddess of fertility. If you really wanted your crops to yield much more, you went to the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven great wonders of the world. It actually looked a lot like the Parthenon to our eyes, but it was much bigger. It was uh, basically the size of a football field, and uh, it was huge. It's so big. It was so enormous. It took 120 years to build. And so one of these seven wonders of the world, all these people from all over the Roman Empire would come and they'd flock to Artemis and they would worship her in hope that their fertility in whatever category it was would increase. And so this was a spiritual Mecca back in the day. What changes here is when Demetrius realizes I'm losing my income, he is very anxious and starts a series of events that turns into a riot. Now, when a person wants more babies or puppies or more veggies, um, today we're, we're basically functionally doing the same thing by worshiping that created thing, that good thing, and making it the ultimate thing. Now, many of us don't think in terms of idol worship today, unless you have a coworker, like Ken uh, mentioned to me. He's got several coworkers that are in India and China that literally worship uh, idols, and that is uh, still very much common, especially in the East today. But in the Western world, we tend not to think of that. We tend to think of that as primitive, all while the same, we do the same thing in, all, in our practice. For example, uh, Tim Keller helps us define idolatry in our Western context when he said, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. We put this good thing and we put it on a pedestal in our lives. And make it the ultimate thing. I want to look at all the different characters and go through them quickly and look at what were these idols. There, there's a surface idol like Artemis, an actual thing that you can look at, hold, and touch. But there's a deeper idol behind every single one of these. So let's look at this. Let's look at Demetrius. Demetrius here, what's his problem? Well, he's threatened by financial loss. His deeper idol is success, because right now he's dealing with a lot of failure. And his strategy is to manipulate. He gets all the silversmiths together, and he basically says, it's not just financial loss we're talking about, but it's the loss of the worship of Artemis. I mean, like, she herself might be removed from her magnificence. And so if you look at the silversmith, they're a little driven slightly different. The silversmith are threatened by a spiritual loss of Artemis. Well, there's a deeper idol there, and that's power, and they're losing that power. 
And so their strategy, their reaction is to protest. And when they go to the theater, which was no small theater, it holds 24,000 people in Ephesus. I mean, this was a huge crowd. They get the crowd together, and they're threatened by uh, anxiety. The anxiety of this group just spreads to group anxiety, right? And really what is the Dripa idol in this moment, it seems, is their security. And the way they handle this strategy is they start to blame others. It's not unusual. These patterns are not unusual in the way we handle our deeper idols. So they blame two Christians. They bring in these two uh, gentlemen into the middle of this. And then uh, the Jews who want to disassociate themselves from the Christians, uh, they put forward this guy named Alexander. And so if you look at the Jews, they're threatened by treated as outcast or associated with Christians. But their deeper idols pride because they're like, we're not like those Christians. We don't we aren't doing that. Uh, and their strategy is to defend themselves, have uh, this guy, Alexander, get up and make a defense. But they recognize he's a Jew, the crowd does, which also doesn't believe in uh, the Greek pantheon in Artemis. Uh, and so what happens is uh, they shut them up by chanting for two hours straight, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? And so they start chanting this, and the Jews are worried about being treated as uh, outcasts, and in that moment, it all falls apart for them because they are. They try to defend themselves, but it doesn't work. And finally, the city clerk shows up. Now, it makes sense what his job would be. If he looks at chaos, and that's what he's threatened by, his goal is to control. I mean, that's his job, is to like, put down things like this. And he seems to be the only one that's reasonable in this, in this moment. And he basically says, hey, use the civil courts. And the whole thing uh, then is dismissed and uh, we assume must be probably taken up in court if there is an actual case or not. So uh, what you need to see here is there are, can be the same event. And many times there are many different groups that view it from different perspectives that together pull themselves down. And that's what often happens when you look at, like for us today, a national crisis. Uh, it's not that we all agree on the same thing, but when we're all fighting and going down, it's because we're serving a deeper idol idol in that moment, and we're using different strategies to win, to get our, to make our idol, idol work, to keep our idol up on the pedestal. There is a sin underneath the sin. So when I ask you a question, what thing is too precious to you, be it your kids, be it your job, be it your neighborhood, be it your best friend, when, when that thing is too precious to you, what's the deeper idol that you're really serving? Is it really power? Is it control? Is it security? Is it approval? What is it? Because that is the thing that you truly worship. You may not mentally think that, but functionally, if you look at your uh, physiological response to when that is lost, to when your child really makes a major mistake or turns their back on you. You could tell uh, your reaction in that moment has a lot to do 
with what you really worship. Your idolatry has consequences, and I know you know that. It has consequences on your soul. It has consequences on others. You become more difficult to live with. You bring chaos rather than peace more into your family or into your workplace. Um, And so why it's important for us to answer that first question, what created thing is too precious to you? When your created thing is put up on a pedestal, guess what? It's going to fall. It was never intended to be up there. There is a natural law of gravity that pulls it down. And God has created natural laws in this world that means you shall serve no other gods before him. That's the first commandment of the ten. Martin Luther mentioned that whenever you break any of the commandments two through ten, you actually break the first one first. You actually commit either literal or functional idolatry. You have another God that's more important to you than God. Second question we need to ask is look at this from the disciples' perspective. How do you respond when others lose their precious things? And let me read to you verses 29 through 31 again. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. And so what happens is Paul wants to go in. I mean, here are his friends, Christians, that are in the middle of this huge mob, in this enormous amphitheater. Chaos is assuming. Their lives are at stake. And they're pinning it on Paul and these companions that are with them that are telling them about Christ. And so Paul reacts, all right? Now, we don't know if this reaction is a good reaction or a negative reaction, but for whatever reason, the disciples said, no, 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 don't go in there. Don't go. And then there's these other uh, people here in the Scripture called Asiarchs, which are uh, very wise uh, and influential city politicians. And they're like, no, 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 don't go in. It's likely that they're not even Christians, but they're also agreeing in like, Paul, you don't want to do this. But we don't know what the reason why. Paul could have been reacting in the flesh, wanting to go win, you know, and, and to try to convert everybody and be willing to risk his life. You know, there's a cost there uh, that the disciples would have certainly considered. Can we afford losing this guy? But he might have had a negative reaction. That's maybe why they held him back. Or he could have actually had a positive response. We don't know about that. Or they could have just said, let's just wait on the Lord and see if this thing plays out. I don't know about Paul, but I do know about me. Usually when I'm dealing with group anxiety... And usually when there is lead, it's leading the chaos, and especially when my name is at stake, I freak out. I react. I don't respond in a healthy way. I often react, trying to defend myself, t- trying to blame somebody else, trying to show up and take action so that this whole thing will go away. 
When I react, it shows, though, that I'm confusing my job with God's job. My job is to be like Christ. My job is not to be Christ. I am not here called to save humanity. And when you look at enormous national debates that are happening among 350 million people, at least when it's the, something here in the States, three and a half, 350 yeah, million people, <laughs> I was like, uh, what you realize here is I can't control the narrative. In fact, you can't control anybody's narrative. But you get a chance to not react. You get a chance to respond. And sometimes the response is place your hand over your mouth. And sometimes the response is step up and stand for the truth. But always the response is to give grace. Is to give grace. How whatever you do with your mouth is ultimately dictated by the God that leads you. The Holy Spirit's job is to guide and lead and direct you. And there are times the Holy Spirit tells you to do different things at different times. This is why it's so important to have a robust relationship with God. is because He will tell you different things in different circumstances. Even more so, He will use your Christian brothers and sisters, the church, to, to provide wisdom as well. And that's what happens here. The church is saying, no, 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 no. We think this time you ought to not act, Paul. Let's wait. And it's absolutely the right thing. So we need to trust. And when you trust you can to God, when you trust God, you can really move from a negative reaction to a godly response. But you've got to trust God first. You've got to trust His Spirit. You've got to trust God's sovereignty his power. You've got to trust God's people. And you've got to trust that Jesus alone saves humanity, not you. Uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Our is people. And he rose from the grave. Jesus was the only Savior of the world. By dying on the cross for our sins, he took the punishment that we deserved. And he gave us the freedom that, that he would have normally gotten because he was a righteous man, but he gave us his freedom. He took the punishment and he gave us his life, his freedom. And the result is that we can act when other people are losing the things that are precious to them in godly ways, speaking truth or holding our hand over our mouth always showing grace because we know that our God is the one that saves. It allows you to be uh, human. One other thing that I th find it really helpful is to remember is that God's law, let's think about the Ten Commandments, are more like natural laws. Even when you're losing power, this could be politically or losing power uh, in your workplace, you're actually being demoted. Or maybe you're losing power uh, with your children. They're off making decisions, and many of them you don't agree with. And your, your time for power 
is gotten pretty low. And uh, at these times, it's helpful to remember that God's law is a lot like natural law, less like a civil law. So a civil law, <clears throat> to use an illustration, is like a city that comes together and a particular committee sitting on the planning, zoning uh, part of the city. They, they, uh, they design and they approved a new plan for an intersection. And they say, all in favor of putting in a stop sign, a four-way stop at this intersection, say aye. Everybody raise their hand, aye. Motion's approved. And somebody goes out there and puts four stop signs in. A little bit later, they build a bypass that goes around this uh, intersection. And one of those roads is hardly ever used. And after a while, they realize there's no need for a uh, stop four stop signs. We could just use two on one road, and the other two really could just use yield because nobody's ever traveling that enough. All in favor of taking up those two stop signs and putting in two yield signs, say aye, aye, okay, approved, okay, they change it out. That's a civil law. That's how civil laws work. But you can imagine if we had the most impressive and powerful committee in the world that maybe it's our presidents and prime ministers of the most powerful countries in the world. Say, all in favor of a fire not burning you, say aye. Aye. Opposed? Nobody opposed? They're like, done. We can all stick our hands in the fire now. Well, you still get burned, right? Because it's not a civil law. And a lot of times we treat our natural laws, God's ways, like civil laws. And that's in part going towards the the urge in us to make sure that our group wins, our team at work wins, our party wins, right, is because we think through legislation we can enact civil law when in essence, uh, even if there is something put on a pedestal, the law of gravity means it will fall. There is a sense of trusting in God, His power to save, but there's also a lot to be said for trusting in God's law and the way he made the world to work to ultimately win the day. It allows you to be human. It allows you to be a person. And it also can often lead to you when you're looking at a major national protest and wanting to put something on Facebook to place your hand over your mouth because it's not dependent on you or your group to win. God alone saves humanity. And he does it in his own ways, ways that we would never expect. You know, you kind of don't expect for the, to expect the things to go bad. What actually happens in this passage is uh, just a city clerk, some random guy that's got some power is like, guys, this is not wise. Y'all go home. And, uh, and they do. Sometimes God works it out without us. So I want you to look at these two questions again. The two questions is what thing is too precious to you? And how do you respond when others lose their precious things? Because that's what's really happening here. Is you have a city that's caught up in idol worship, and the Christians have to decide how do we respond when other people are falling into chaos. So which two questions? I want you to look at those two questions real quick and pick which is your question today that you need to focus on. Which one, pick it in your mind, which one is important for you today to apply?
All right, now, I'm tricking you a little bit. Because the second question is truly second. It has to be answered by the first first. If you noticed yourself saying, I'm good, things aren't too precious to me, that may be the case. But most likely, you're just missing what you're really worshiping. And you're jumping straight into other people are losing their mind. Thank goodness I'm not like them. How am I going to respond? How am I going to be godly? What am I going to do to make this all work out? And you're missing the first question. There might be one or two people that need to focus on the second question here. But almost all of us need to first answer the first question first. Because you don't think that the first one applies to you if you don't, you're going to apply that second one very well. The most gracious people are the ones that have received grace first. Second, you're not going to fully trust God and His law and Jesus to save and the Spirit to guide you unless you love God most. You see, we too quickly jump straight to correcting other people's sins with, without uh, really addressing ours. And if you look at Galatians 6.1, uh, Paul is addressing this. And he says there, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, even as you go to address and speak into a difficult situation where somebody else might be sinning, you have to be very careful because you're this close from throwing in your own sin in the middle of it all. That's why you're gentle. The other reason why you're gentle is because you have received grace for being an idolater, for being someone that worships something other than God, for making something... Uh, that was a created thing, putting it up on a pedestal above God. You've been there before. And though their issue may be a different issue, though it may be more difficult for you to understand, you understand the need for grace. And that kind of person that really is saved by grace and showing up in humility in a conversation, that's the kind of person that really brings the message of Jesus Christ. So the first question is most important. You know, it's interesting going back to my family. In the 1980s, um, coming out of the energy crisis, uh, the rest of the country started to pick back up economically, and Texas went down. Everybody had been tied into the oil business one way or the other. And over the course from about 82 to 92, we started watching in our family every single asset falling. And it got to the point to where I remember when I was a senior in high school in 1987, I was about ready to go to school. My mom was going to take me. And she came into the house and yelled out uh, our very beautiful, rich neighborhood, even outside, where's our car? And my dad did this, and she came in, and he quietly went and told her into the kitchen, that the car had been repossessed from the bank the night before. And she lost it. She lost it on him. 
she lost him. Because it was now they were coming after personal property. Business assets were gone. Listen, we lost everything except for the furniture in the house. I mean, everything. My parents were in their upper 50s with no assets, bankrupt. And it really, for my mom, had to do not so much with the money, but with her granddaddy and her dad and her mom and the loss of a whole life. And that's the way when God allows our idols to follow. You got to realize, and you certainly do, there's a history here. There's a reason why this is the most important thing. There's a reason why that child is the most important thing to you. Why that best friend is the most important thing to you. Why that thing that you lost was so precious to you. There's a reason why, and it's because there is a long narrative of you finding what you need, security or power or control or success that you needed from this thing. And when this person came along or when this person was lost or this created thing fell off its pedestal, you fell apart. There's a reason why. And we should remember that when we're watching at other people falling apart. Because that, if you fully receive the grace of Christ in those moments, you will most likely give it. So, you know, when I think about money today, and this still can, this can still be a problem for me. It, um, often mine is a little bit more control, but, um, but security is right behind it. And when I think, and I just get holding tighter to my thing, to my created thing, what happens is I get worse. I get more insecure. I get more worried that I'm gonna look, somebody's going to come along and take it. I get, I get uh, worried and concerned. But when I open my hand and I let it fall, and I let it, gravity pull it down to where it should be, my hand is open. And I am open to something more precious. Jesus Christ himself. And regardless of my circumstances, regardless of whether I'm able to still have money or not, whether I'm still able to keep control or not, he is satisfying to me. Chaos does not ensue, but instead the peace of Christ rules me despite my circumstances. Losing precious things Losing precious things, like in my family, is one of the best things that can happen to you. In that decade, almost everybody in our family became Christians. And in that decade, grace really did reign. Because for the first five or six years, we tore each other apart. And by years eight, nine, and ten, when one of our siblings would lose it, we'd be like, I get it. I get it. No judgment here. You know me. You've seen me fall apart. I get it. And what happens is losing those precious things becomes the most sweetest, dearest things in time that allows you to truly receive grace and naturally, not out of will, but naturally give grace. So I want to encourage you to let go and open up your heart to Jesus, to allow that precious thing to fall and you'll be better off. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace, and I just thank you how it pursues us like a natural law, how your grace comes to us like wave after wave on the beach, 
that continues to come towards us no matter how much we sin or turn to other gods. Father, we turn to you today with our mouths, with our eyes, and we look up. We look up at you and not down at the things that we continue to hold on to. Father, we let go of those things and trust because you are more precious. You are more uh, sweet to us than anything. And that's where we want to be. In Jesus' name, amen.